The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Romans chapter 4, I read beginning at verse 13. Hear God's word. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. May God seal his word to us with his blessing. I heard something previously unheard of by me at least, just the other week when listening to a TV program on the History Channel that was talking about early explorations of America, people who had come to North America, we know, before Columbus, the Vikings, the Irish, the Polynesians, and various people, and all the different uh, legends or traces that exist about this. One I had never heard of was a tradition that is strong, apparently, among the northern branch of the Cherokee Indian tribe. And this tribe claims a uniqueness among Native American peoples in the United States. At least some feel, anyway, that there is a definite link between the original Cherokee and Hebrew people who crossed the ocean fleeing from persecution in Palestine, perhaps as early as the first century. 
Supposedly, these folks did not have the Asiatic origins of other Native Americans who, the theory is, you know, they came across that land bridge to Alaska and down into Canada and North America, as we call it today. They would say the Cherokee didn't come that way. And in fact, DNA analysis of of Cherokee people do show some different patterns from other Native Americans. Also, the evidence is given about Cherokee stone uh, tablets or things that are incised with different markings that experts say bear remarkable resemblances to Hebrew alphabet writings in places like Tennessee and Alabama. The legends say that perhaps in the first century, folks somehow Jewish people fleeing persecution made their way to North America and became the Cherokee. Who can say? Who can ever prove this? I'm certainly not here to try to establish it. I'm merely reporting what others speak about, and I don't think it ever can be established. But what interested me was to see this illustration that there are modern people today who find it a very important thing to somehow establish a direct biological and hereditary linkage between themselves and the people of Israel and ultimately Abraham. Now, when I was watching that show, I had this text in my mind already for this week, and it immediately sprang into my mind why I have a better claim to linkage to Abraham than the Cherokee as a people can ever claim. My linkage is not through myths or legends. It is not certainly through bloodline. I have no Jewish ancestry that I know anything about. But Abraham is my spiritual father in a very strong biblical faith connection because both he and I look to God's one Savior Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures say, together we belong in effect to the Israel of God, not the lineal uh, nation, the ethnic nation of Israel that lives in a particular place in the world, but the great spiritual Israel made of Jews and Gentiles who look to and acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as God's promised Savior. Certainly we could make the statement, and it would be almost above dispute, that the greatest human character in the Bible, aside from Jesus, was Abraham. Now maybe somebody would say, well, wait a minute, what about Moses? He was pretty great. David, Paul, all of those were stellar people, to be sure. But if you had asked Moses or David or Paul about Abraham, every one of them would have said, why, he's my spiritual father. I look to him as the head of my race and my spiritual model. And we believe no one really understands the New Testament without understanding Abraham. And you don't actually understand the Old Testament either without grasping the New Testament viewpoint on Abraham that we have read some of here in Romans chapter 4. Whenever I discuss with people the unity of the Bible and how the Old Testament does relate to the New, something I, I grew up not understanding well at all until I was probably well along into college and seminary studies of the Bible. I, I grew up thinking we had sort of two separate books, in Old Testament, New Testament, and they never met. Absolutely wrong. And the way you would understand that best is to understand Abraham as the linkage 
And if you wanted a fairly simple assignment on that, you would go to two premier New Testament chapters, Galatians 3 that I'll not be looking at today, and Romans 4. Very similar chapters where a similar argument is made about how Abraham unifies one salvation that God is doing by grace through faith in the Old Testament and the New, and how he has, therefore, one people, one people saved by grace in eternity. Now, in Romans 4, Paul is writing in powerful arguments to show this oneness, this unity. He showed in chapter 3, the remarkable chapter, how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man has no hope in and of himself. He takes us through 3.20, leaving us flat on our faces with our mouths silenced and no way to answer God because of our sins. But then, of course, the great discovery in 3.21, but now there's a righteousness apart from the law that God has made known and the prophets testify to through Jesus Christ to all who believe. And we see here that Abraham is in the stream of that righteousness that is by faith. I hope as we wrap up these 10 weeks that we've been looking at Abraham, you will see today this strong unity of God's redemptive work. Everything that is said about Abraham and how God credited his own righteousness on this man's behalf, this imperfect man, remember. Now, you know, we put him on a pedestal, but be careful. Remember how human he was, how, how many failings he had, how many actually stupid things he did. And how sometimes he just didn't seem to fully trust God, but his faith grew strong as he walked with God more and more. Once you will see this unity, I believe, you will find that you, as a believer in Christ, stand in a tremendous position of security with great reason for hope. My points are are very simple, and they're drawn as I would give you the big picture of this text without getting lost in its details today. In Romans 4 and verses 13 to 15, first of all, see that Abraham was in no sense justified by keeping of God's law. Abraham was in no sense justified by keeping the law of God. Paul was writing to Hebrew people primarily like himself, or at least there was an argument, a back argument being carried on with these people who said law-keeping and meticulous performance of the commands of God was what counted. And Paul was saying, no, it isn't what counted. And as a matter of fact, in the parallel chapter, Galatians 3, he very specifically says, don't you understand? How could Abraham be saved by keeping the law when the commandments didn't exist? until 400 years afterward. He shows how absolutely illogical that would be. Here's Abraham receiving this premier relationship to God, and if we have a relationship like his through the means that he had, then it can't be the keeping of commandments which had not even been given yet in Abraham's day. What shall we say, Paul started out this fourth chapter. I didn't read verse 1, but he says, you know, what shall we say about this man? What did he have going for him naturally? What natural attributes did he have to present? Was he an especially obedient guy? Well, paraphrasing Paul, his answer is nothing. He had nothing going for him in his natural way. As we studied over these last weeks or so, last nine Sundays, Genesis 12 through 22, I want to remind you that never once did we ever 
hear the revelation of God to Abraham saying anything like this. Abraham, obey my law and I will bless you. You show me the verse where God revealed that. And a number of times it says God spoke to Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham. He never said, obey me and I will bless you. If he had said that, that would have been a man-centered, law-based contract between a man and God. But God never said that. Instead, the Lord said this in so many words, Abraham, I will bless you. I am prepared to marvelously bless you. Just trust me. That wasn't a performance-based thing at all. It simply called for his faith in what God announced in advance, that which is frequently called the promise here in the New Testament. God promised, I'm going to bless you. It's going to be a blessing so huge you won't believe it. Trust me. That's all I ask. You see, if we're asked to obey a system of laws or obey a a list of rules like just about every major human religion presents without exception in some way, then we're pointing to ourselves and our abilities to perform, and we know that failure is going to come. This text says in verse 15 here, as we read, that, that the law actually brings God's wrath to light because it it simply has us see how we fail God. And and if we're going to fail God, we're going to be subject to his anger for our sin. Any kind of law-keeping is going to bring that on, any kinds of rule-keeping. You know, I don't care how many rules your system has. If you have the checklist in front of you and you go through your days and say, oh, this is a great day for me keeping the law of God. I did 94 out of 100 points that I intended to do today. What about the six points? What do we do about that? The six points is the glaring problem, isn't it? I'm embarrassing my wife for the second time today, but I remember how she was one that got wonderful grades going through school. She got better grades than I did. I would assume she's smarter than I am. But she also had a different attitude, even though she got better grades. A 97 to my wife was a problem. She would go home from a test with a 97 almost in a blue funk of depression. I missed three questions. If I got a 97, I was on a high for many weeks to come. 97! Great! But you see, God looks at it more as my wife did. You fell short. If law is your way to come to me, God says, 3%, 30%, 82%, however much you fell short, you did not meet my standard of perfection, of righteousness. The law only serves to condemn us. It's like a mirror. You hold up a mirror and you see, oh, I've got grease and dirt smudged all over my face. All right, the law has revealed your problem. They say, all I have to do then is go out and wash my face. But what if the world is full of mirrors and you look into the law of God and see your shortcomings, but they're not smudges on your face. It's dirt on your soul. And there's no soap and water in the universe that cleanses a soul. And now you know you've got a problem, but you've got no answer, no way to deal with it. The law isn't bad because it showed that to you. God's law is glorious and good, but it has revealed a problem you have that you cannot remedy. 
Well, let's just remember that Abraham, the premier man in relationship to God in this Old Testament, the way he's brought out in all those chapters, we looked at him, more than 10 chapters. Abraham was in no sense justified by law-keeping. Keeping the law wasn't even in the picture for him. God's way for him was to come and be related in a new sense to God by the standard of faith. And Paul here is arguing, looking back, capping this off, binding this so that the Old Testament and the New make sense together. Paul is saying, don't you understand that the way of relationship that God established with Abraham is the way that sticks, not law-keeping, the way of faith. So secondly, we go to the point that is made then in verses 16 through 22. And again, I'm gliding by some things here that would deserve detailed examination. But as a second point today, here we see what we would call the full-fledged New Testament gospel bursting out in the proposition of Paul as he says, Abraham was justified only by God-centered faith that looks to Christ. The promise comes by faith, he says here. He's talking to those who are of the faith of Abraham in verse 16. Now, we can never escape people in this world who, when they talk about faith, think they're just talking about a feeling or sort of a uh, disoriented, uh, goofy sense that, that we religious people have that makes us discard our brains, our intellect. And these people would always want to pit reason against faith, and of course their conclusion is that reason or the intellect is superior to what they call faith. Bertrand Russell of a former generation was typical when he called faith, quote, a whimsical conviction which cannot be shaken by the presence of contrary evidence. In other words, Bertrand Russell was saying faith is just plain foolish because there's evidence against it, but, but here, based on their whimsical, superstitious idea, these Christians believe it anyway, even though it's intellectual suicide. Well, actually, I don't have a problem with Bertrand Russell's statement, a whimsical conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. The only problem I have with it is the word whimsical. If you take that out, I'm good with his statement. Faith is a conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. It's a conviction that looks at the evidence, that understands the evidence, that studies the evidence, in fact, but then says, wait, I have something greater that I put my trust in. And it isn't whimsy. It isn't the fantasy of my mind. It isn't an emotion. It's the character and power and integrity and greatness of the Most High God and what He speaks, and what He says. And I understand it to be absolutely intellectually reasonable to trust in the most trustworthy person I could ever imagine, the eternal God, the God who stands enthroned above the heavens, the God whom Jeremiah said, Lord, nothing is too hard for you. The great thing about Abrahamic faith is not that it's ignorant or that it doesn't look at the objections or the problems, but that it has a great object, that it trusts the incomparable God. A God who never forgets, who never fails, who never falters, who adheres to every prophecy that he ever gave as if he was setting out a program for himself that he would certainly fulfill. 
In the book of Numbers 23, 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie. Has he said a thing, and shall he not do it? James 1.17 says he is the father of lights in whom there's no variables, variableness, no shadow of turning at all. He's absolutely trustworthy. So we have here in Romans 4, especially verses 18 to 20, a kind of synopsis, a quick review, a little capsule of, of what Abraham went through and what he dealt with in his faith. And what Paul seems to say here in this synopsis as he writes, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. He looked at his body as good as dead. In other words, he was realistic. He understood the problems. And yet, he did not waver through unbelief. Why? Because he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is not Bertrand Russell's anti-intellectual kind of faith. We're told Abraham was an intellectual. He understood the facts. He estimated them all. He considered, why, there's nothing here God can work with. I'm dead. Sarah might as well be dead as far as being first-time parents are concerned. And we know that. But God has said it. And I will rest content with the bare word of my God and expect, if necessary, miraculous work from him. Martin Luther commented on this passage in his Romans commentary. Luther always spoke in colorful ways and no less so on this occasion. Let me quote a few sentences he wrote here. Luther said, What could be more irrational, laughable, ridiculous, or impossible than God's words of promise to Abraham? So there's Luther saying God's promise to him was laughable, ridiculous, impossible from a human standpoint. Then he went on to say this. Faith, however, is always completely abreast of its situation, and if it must, it looks at the reasonable facts and then grasps or grips reason by the throat and strangles the beast. Luther said, faith shouts, listen, reason. You are blind and stupid and foolish if you do not understand the things of God. Cease your chatter. Venture no more to criticize the Word of God. Do you understand, Luther? He was saying, of course I've got a reasoning mind. Of course I can see that what God is saying is is not at all probable in any human circumstance. I understand that. I'm not stupid but I'm listening to my God. And if necessary, I'm saying, pardon the crude way perhaps of saying it, I'm saying to my reason, sit down and shut up because God has spoken. You see, faith that justifies people before God locks itself on the trustworthiness of the one who makes the promise. And it sees how all his promises from the Old Testament gather themselves together and culminate, and all the threads work forward and culminate in Christ, of whom the New Testament says all God's promises have their yes and their amen in Him. And so it is a right way, and it is not fanciful at all for us to say what Abraham 
was anticipating as his God spoke and he trusted him was that in Jesus Christ all the promises would be true. Remember John eight fifty eight last time? Abraham saw my day, Jesus said. Jesus said that. He saw it and he rejoiced in it. Therefore, it was faith that brought this wonderful thing alive for Abraham. Well, then, finally, in verses 23 to 25, we conclude this grand chapter. And Paul wants to assert this. He's not saying, look, I'm not just giving you a history lesson. I'm not just interested that you would all say, oh, praise be to Abraham. What good would that be? No, he says, not at all. I want you to see that what God did for him in his faith, he will do for you. The words it was credited to him for righteousness were not written for him alone, but for us to whom God will credit righteousness. If we will do what? Look at your Bible, please, if you have it open. What is it we're supposed to do here to have righteousness credited to us? I would think you would want to have that question answered. It's a very important question. Well, Paul answers it. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, for he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. You see what God was doing in Abraham's time? He was teaching him to to know that he was a God who brought life out of deadness. A God who literally raised things up that didn't exist. And he's saying in so many words, folks, How much more reason do we have to trust God this side of Calvary when we have seen the evidence in history of Easter morning when God has raised his son up already? And many credible witnesses have reported this. We know he can do this. He has done this. So the apostle has no trouble seeing the Old Testament apply to Christians. One Lord, one salvation, one faith, one baptism, one people of God. Not plan A for ethnic Israel and plan B for the Gentile church. No, sir. One Israel of God in whom all God's people are gathered in and the entire case of the thing is not decided by are you genetically descended from the Hebrews like the Cherokee might be concerned to know. It is this. Do you have Abraham's faith? That's what we've been talking about for 10 weeks. Do you have the kind of faith this man had? You're not asked to believe the exact same things he was. But in essence, the core is the same. You are asked to believe in a God who brings life out of deadness. A God who can give you, even you, a new birth. You don't create that new birth. You don't say, I think I'll be born again. I, oh, that would be a nice idea. Let's be born again. What a good idea. No. The Scripture says, John chapter 3, where does the, the birth? It comes from the Spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus. And the wind blows wherever it will. God brings that new birth. He brings you alive. And it's just like when 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah hysterically laugh in their tent at the birth of a child when you rejoice and say, God has given me a new birth. God has brought life where there was no life. That's what is promised. And that's what is claimed by the faith of Abraham. 
Now, we could go many directions, and I could tell you how Romans 4, along with other similar texts, really are the basis of the 16th century Reformation. The simple points I've made today that redemption, salvation is not by being justified in the law. It is by being justified by faith. What is that except the premise of the Reformation? These are very fundamental things, very important things. But this summation of faith didn't begin with the Reformation. It didn't begin with Paul. It began with God's work in Abraham, doing one thing between Old Testament and New. And I'm not just telling you there's a thread stretching from Abraham to Paul to you. It's a steel beam, folks. You ever see these enormous bridge beams that uh, they would take one beam on a long truck down the road from high steel or somewhere around here? Enormous load-bearing beams. That's what we've got in the faith of Abraham. Old Testament to new. The question before you as we depart from this study is this. Do you trust the promises of God to redeem those who trust Him? Do you trust in a God whose character has always proved trustworthy, complete integrity? His written word has never been proven false. Do you rest assured in what he says about Christ as the culmination of everything he said he would do in history? And even despite difficulties and questions and problems that people may raise or your reason may think up, are you ready to say, sure, there are some obstacles, but God has spoken. I will trust him. I tell you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this text is telling us, is the grand proof of our God's promises being trustworthy. Place your trust in the God of Abraham. Look to Jesus Christ, the living Lord, who was the final Isaac, the Isaac for whom the knife was not stopped. The knife actually plunged into that Isaac, Jesus. But God raised him up. The God who brings life where there is no life gives us living faith. And it is that living faith that he credits for eternal righteousness. May God bless you with such a faith, even today. Our Father, your word is a marvel. How it weaves patterns that are consistent between what is done and said in early days and what is true in the New Testament gospel and what is then embellished and exhorted by the apostles to us as a gospel to believe. This word deserves our trust. Our Father, build living faith in us, faith that looks to Christ, faith that rests on you, faith that is not stupid, that is willing to reckon with difficulties, but nevertheless knows what to trust. Give us the triumph of that faith that lays hold of that we could never claim by our own obedience, even your own perfect righteousness in eternity. We ask this with thanksgiving and praise for you. In Jesus' name, amen.